The Interchange is brought to you by Shoals Technologies Group, a global leader in balance of system solutions for solar and storage. Shoals has been serving EPCs with the highest quality combiner boxes, junction boxes, wires, racking, and monitoring solutions for over two decades. And now, Shoals presents the BLA solution, an integrated wire harness that eliminates combiner boxes and slashes installation costs. This American company has deployed products on more than 25 gigawatts of solar projects around the world. Shoals is the gold standard for solar and storage. To learn more about how Shoals can make your project operate at the highest level, including more about BLA, visit Shoals.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S, Shoals.com. The interchange is supported by Five Works, a turnkey customer engagement platform. Utilities, if you're looking to go beyond the meter to engage your customers on a deeper level and drive them toward desired outcomes, you're looking for Five Works. FiveWorks personalizes digital communications and drives customer behavior at scale by using behavioral science, psychographic personas, and machine learning technology to help you market to a customer of one. That's how you deliver the right message to the right person through the right channel at the right time. To see how FiveWorks can help your program succeed, visit fiveworks.com slash the interchange. That's FiveWorks with an X. 5works.com slash the interchange or follow the link on the podcast page. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. In Boston, I'm Stephen Lacey, joined by Shale Khan, my co-host who's out in Berkeley, California. Hello, Shale. Hey, Stephen. It's been a while since we talked. And a lot has changed since we've talked. We spent so many weeks talking about Rick Perry's proposed rule, you know, uh, trying to save coal and nuke plants. And now all of a sudden attention has shifted to another notice of proposed rulemaking, a noper, so to speak, over at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And basically they're telling wholesale markets, grid operators to find ways to value storage as a unique resource. And uh, it's a pretty big deal. So you've been thinking a lot about this. And I wanted to start the show off by chatting about its implications. Yeah, no, it's a huge deal. Uh, you know, we've been sort of waiting because the original notice of proposed rulemaking came out during right at the tail end of the Obama administration and had been just on ice um, as the new FERC was forming. And there was, as you said, dealing with other issues. So finally, on February 15th, FERC released the the draft final rules. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a, ultimately, it's going to take a couple of years for this to play through, but ultimately could be a really big deal for energy storage. But, um, you know, I think that one of the things that has has gone somewhat under the radar in the conversation about this NOPER is that people have referred to it in shorthand as the storage NOPER. And that's not inaccurate. It was mostly about energy storage. But back when they, you know, when, when Norman Bay and, and FERC um, put out the original proposed rulemaking, it was really two things in one. Part one was this storage piece, which was, all, you know, directing all the ISOs and RTOs to redesign their markets to allow energy storage to compete. But part two of it that I think got less attention was about distributed energy resources um, and their ability to play in wholesale markets in aggregate. So this would be aggregating a bunch of DERs um, to participate in those same wholesale markets that, en that energy storage can now play in. So the original ruling was uh, sort of addressed both. And then what FERC ended up doing 
a couple of weeks ago is basically taking up the storage portion of that immediately and then sort of punting on the distributed energy resource portion of that. They said they basically don't have enough information yet. And so instead what they're going to do is they're going to hold a technical conference on the question of DER aggregation at the beginning of April, April 10th and 11th. Um, and so for that reason, both because it's like a little bit more complicated and because they punted on it, I think people have paid a little bit less attention to the DR aggregation portion. But to me, that one ultimately, depending on what happens, could be just as big a deal, if not even a bigger deal for sort of the future of the grid. So what are the questions that FERC commissioners are asking? It gives us a window into what the possible answers might be and where this track could go. Right. So there are a lot and they're really good questions. I mean, I guess what I would say, if you want to dig into this a little bit, if anybody's interested, uh, the notice of the technical conference. So when FERC just said, we're going to have a technical conference on, on April 10th and 11th, um, they put out a document that, that basically outlined the specific panels that they're going to have during that technical conference. And then a laundry list of questions that they would like to have answered or at least addressed at that conference. And to my mind, the questions are really, really good. They show that FERC has put a lot of thought into this. They didn't really just punt on this decision lightly. They put a lot of thought into, well, what are the things we need to understand before we can confidently state that we are going to require all of these grid operators, all these wholesale market operators to to incorporate DERs. So they came up with this big long list and it's it split up into seven different parts. But, you know, a sample of them here, you know, one example would be, um, these are wholesale markets, right? And they're regulated at the federal level. But because the resources that we're talking about, the distributed energy resources um, are at the distribution level, they're small, right? Which is in contrast to the big centralized stuff. Um, and because oftentimes they are, you know, operating at the customer premises and they have some additional value stream that is coming from the retail side. That raises a bunch of questions about like what these resources are going to do to the local regulators or the state regulators or the, you know, utilities. Um, because you could have these resources that are playing in these two totally separate markets. And if that's not coordinated, then you can, you know, do something positive on one side and negative on the other side. So they ask a bunch of questions about what the proper protections would need to be or any policies that would need to be implemented to make sure that DERs playing in wholesale markets would not then have a negative effect on the distribution system, which I feel like is a totally fair question. So in summation, this is a BFD for DERs at FERC. <laughs> yeah, that's right. LOL. <laughs> okay, well, we're obviously going to be following this one very closely. We'll keep our eyes on that technical conference, have coverage coming out of it and in the lead up. And we'll, of course, be talking to the companies in this space, both big and small and speaking of good conversations, we have another one this week as part of our What It Takes series produced in collaboration with Powerhouse, a cleantech co-working space and seed fund based in Oakland, California. And this week's conversation was recorded live on stage between Emily Kirsch, the CEO of Powerhouse, and Sarah Ross, who is the CEO of SunGage Financial. SunGage was one of the first providers of solar loans in the residential rooftop PV space. And uh, again, we're going to hear how Sarah got to where she is, 
how the idea for the company came together, some of the challenges that she faced as she built the company. Our MC for What It Takes, Shail Khan, starts us off with a little bit of background on Sarah Ross. Enjoy this conversation. So let me start by telling you something that I'm sure some of you already know, but the rest of you are about to find out. Sarah Ross is awesome. I met Sarah back when she had basically just started her company, which is called SunGage Financial. We were both living in Boston at the time, or rather, I was living in Boston, and Sarah was building a company in Boston while living in Western Massachusetts. But that's beside the point for now. SunGage was, I think at that point, either two or three people and was really just starting to build its platform and figure out what kind of business it was going to be. But even back then, when it was basically just an idea, Sarah had a level of conviction and a clarity of intent that I've rarely seen, even in a world of entrepreneurs who often have those exact things in spades. One of my favorite things about Sarah as an entrepreneur um, relates to the founding story of SunGage. You know, the sort of prototypical founding story that you think of from the movies and, you know, in your imagination basically goes like this. I tried to do something. I discovered it was hard or it was slow or it was more expensive than it should have been. So I started a company to fix the problem, right? That's like the quintessential founding story of a startup. In my experience, uh, that is actually pretty rare. It's not how most startups begin. Many companies are founded because the entrepreneurs had some experience with the technology in a previous role, or they just came up with an idea on paper and wanted to fund it, or it was spun out of some other organization. Oftentimes, uh, that story doesn't actually relate to how a company is really founded. In the case of Sarah's founding story, which I'm sure you'll hear in more detail in just a minute, uh, it fits that story perfectly. Sarah tried to finance solar on her own roof, found it unnecessarily difficult, and built a company to fix the problem. And the result is one of the largest residential solar financing companies in the country, with hundreds of millions of dollars raised to help homeowners go solar. And specifically, SunGage offers residential solar loans. Now, if you've just sort of entered cognizance of the solar market right now, you would recognize loans as being pretty common um, and pretty rapidly becoming the dominant means to finance residential solar. That is the state of affairs today. That was by no means the state of affairs when Sarah started SunGage. Back then, this is I think 2009 or so, leases and power purchase agreements were ascendant. Um, and they ultimately topped out at about three quarters of all the residential solar that was getting installed in any given year. So three quarters of it was third party owned. Some portion of the remainder were just cash purchases, people who could afford to pay in cash. So a very small sliver of residential solar was getting financed with loans. But as far as I can tell, Sarah's confidence that homeowners wanted ownership over their own solar arrays basically never wavered. And SunGage built a business that is now riding the wave and in many ways pushing the wave of loans that is overtaking the market nationwide. So beyond that, I'm sure that you all will, as I have, um, find Sarah to be as sharp and engaging as anybody else that you know. So 
enjoy the story of Sarah Ross and SunGage Financial. All right. Hello, I'm Emily Kirsch. I'm the founder and CEO here at Powerhouse, and I am thrilled to welcome Sarah Ross to our episode of What It Takes. So welcome to Powerhouse and welcome to What It Takes. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. It's a lovely introduction, Shale. Pleasure. So I want to start by hearing a bit about where you grew up, what it was like, and what you were like growing up. Yes. So I grew up in a college town in western Massachusetts, Amherst. Uh, would feel very familiar to those of you who know Berkeley. It's a town of academics, of course, with all the colleges around. It's a town of artists, uh, glassblowing, bookbinding, stuff like that. It's also a town of activists. Uh, I realize that's probably the unifying theme of Amherst. I realized this the other day for my daughter when she came home. She's 11 years old, and she was talking about a new friend at school that was coming over for a play date. And she's like, oh, I really like this girl. She seems really cool. In fact, she reminds me of a human rights activist. <laughs> that was like this. Like, when I was 11, I don't think I knew what a human rights activist was. So that's when I, like, was hit over the head that that's really the, the like, unifying theme of, of growing up in Amherst is this, like, activist spirit. So that's where I grew up. Um, I was probably half nerd, half jock. Uh, the nerd part you could see through my club associations, which were the Russian club. And uh, American Society Through Film, two very nerdy club mm -hmm. associations. And the jock part was running. I was cross-country runner, track runner, ran around the track faster than I can ever imagine running now in my yes. older age. So, um, And tell us a bit about your family, your parents, what they did. Yes, my, my mom worked as an administrative assistant at one of the many colleges in the area. She grew up in a family where her father did not think that women should go to college, so she was sent off to secretarial school mm -hmm. when she was a young woman. So, mm -hmm. she's uh, so that was her path. Uh, my father was a small business owner, so in many ways a kind of repeat entrepreneur. He owned pizza places and ice cream parlors and bars and just kind of one small business after another. Antique shops, you know, all really kind of brutal. Brutal businesses where you ring the cash register and you know the buck stopped with him, and so that was really my my exposure to small businesses through through him. And did that experience make you feel like I want to be an entrepreneur? Pizza and ice cream is no. awesome. <laughs> no, how come? No, I mean it was brutal. I saw how hard it was to run your own business. He was constantly struggling with, you know, staff and hiring folks. Uh, you know, making ends meet. Um, it was it was a hard hard thing to watch. Uh, one of his businesses got embroiled in a large lawsuit that kind of consumed my old childhood. So, yeah, my exposure to the private sector was it's stressful, it's scary, it's dangerous. Like this was not you know not anything that I looked at with great fondness, frankly. So you wanted nothing to do with I small business to do entrepreneurship. With I'm in a college town. Most of my friends, their parents are professors. You know, they got summers off. Things were very calm. Like none of the stress of this, of this household um, that I was living in. So no, I wanted, I wanted nothing to do with the private sector period. Never mind this crazy thing called entrepreneurship, which I'm sure I didn't have in my head at the time. Gotcha. Okay. So, so that was, so nerd jock high school and then tell us about college. College, I, uh, you know, growing up in a college town, I wanted to do nothing but leave the college town because that's what, you know, 17-year-olds wants to do is leave home. So I ventured across the Mississippi to Washington University, uh, traded in my Russian nerd self for some economics nerdiness, traded in my running self for some crew, 
uh, and met my husband there. And it was, you know, four years of living in a very different place than Amherst was. Uh, St. Louis, a very different town. None of the um, none of the socioeconomic or I guess none of the racial diversity that I had grown up in with in Amherst. As a college town, you know, my first friend was named Yuki. Mm-hmm. Um, and next door, I mean, it was Jamal. It was just a very, it was a very culturally diverse place with all the colleges. So St. Louis had none of that. So it was good to be taken out of the bubble, mm-hmm. um, see a different part of the country, uh, kind of stretch my wings a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then after college, what kind of work were you doing? After college, I decided to combine, you know, kind of the internationalism that uh, was the original inspiration for studying Russian and the economic side of things in the field of international development. So I started work at the Harvard Institute for International Development. This was a group that was um, taking folks, economists from the Harvard ecosystem, and sending them across to places like Sub-Saharan Africa to work on monetary policy and agricultural policy. So I uh, got exposed to that discipline in that work. Went on to do a master's degree in international development and then probably could have thought this one ahead, but realized that from a personal point of view, combining a career in international development and starting a family one day was going to be a hard thing to do. Because of the travel? Yes. The, so I worked in Africa for a while and really enjoyed that. Um, again, didn't fit very well with kind of starting a family. Did some of this work back in the States and just found it too disconnected. Uh, doing this work from Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. did not feel hands-on enough for me, did not feel as connected to the work. It was everything that I disliked about international development, mm-hmm. kind of this know-it-allism from Washington, D.C. So decided to move away from that into more domestic policy work. So worked for the New York City Health Department. This was at a time when they just packed the Smoke Free Air Act, so New York City had gone smoke-free, all the restaurants and bars in New York City were up in arms that this is going to kill the restaurant industry in New York City. If anyone's been to New York City lately, it's all still well and good, uh, but we were doing analysis there to look at kind of the economic impacts of the Smoke Free Air Act. We also did work uh, to contemplate a soda tax, whether that was something that would raise some money for New York City coffers and also have some nice public health impacts. So that was kind of how I turned to more domestic policy work. Mm-hmm. And at that point, did you did you feel an entrepreneurial spirit or were you still sworn off it no, for the I'm rest of your life? No, I'm hanging the public sector. I'm fine. Yeah. All's good. <laughs> all uh, stable. All stable. Yeah. Husband's doing his private sector thing. Yeah. I'm over in my public sector. No, I'm good. Okay. I'm like living the public sector dream. Gotcha. No, okay, so you're living the public. And then, and then what was the spark? What happened and after? And then I had a baby. You had, okay. And then did you, were you, where were you at this point? Still living in, in, we were living in Brooklyn, uh, had daughter in Brooklyn, had planned, you know, when I was still pregnant to go right back to work three months later. That did not happen. Various personal circumstances intervened. Uh, four years later, kid number two, I've now been a stay-at-home mom for four years. So that kind of took me through a good chunk of time and it was very unexpected. It was not what I had foreseen for myself, but it was just kind of how, how the world evolved. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. Okay, so kid two, and at that point, are you still in? Kid two, we're, now, we're now back where I grew up in Amherst. Mm-hmm. Grandparents seemed like a really good thing to have around mm-hmm. with two kids. So we moved back to Amherst. We were renting a house first in downtown Amherst, just kind of getting our bearings. 
I decided to uh, really decided to you know put down roots and be there for good. So we thought, let's make some 50-year decisions. Let's find a home either to renovate or build. Let's get educated on what making 50-year decisions around our living environment would look like. Connected up with some local green builder type architects that could kind of talk me through what this all meant. At this point, I knew nothing about solar. I knew nothing about insulation. I knew nothing about any of this world, uh, but certainly knew that, you know, again, we wanted to make these 50-year decisions and, and be smart about it. So. Uh, ended up buying an old farmhouse that was right next door to where we were renting. We, I remember we inspected the house, which was a wreck and unlivable when my son was like six or seven days old. So I had this little kind of pouch on my front and the inspector's oh, looking at me old and, and you looking at this house and looking at me like, you're not planning to bring this child and living in this dilapidated house, are you? Wow. Um, so yeah, we were back in Amherst at the time. and. Buying a new home and tearing it down to the studs and, and rebuilding it to be this kind of house to stay in. And you wanted to put solar on the roof. I did not go into that knowing anything about solar or uh -huh. having any solar ideas. Huh. Again, the, the concept was like, we want to push the envelope mm -hmm. and make the most responsible decisions we could make from a house perspective. And so I had to get educated on what that meant, right? That meant open cell foam here on the walls. That meant triple paint windows, fiberglass. That meant... LED lights. Oh, and it meant this thing called solar. Go, like, oh, tell me, tell me more about that. So yeah, there was no kind of I want to go solar. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. was I want to do a responsible thing. You experts tell me what that looks like. Mm -hmm. And solar, of course, mm -hmm. was part of that education process, right? Part of how we uh, made a net zero energy home kind of come to life. And what was that process like, going solar? That process looked like contacting one of the local friendly solar installers, a worker co-op up in friendly Greenfield, Mass., having a salesperson come to my house, the, the rental house, look at the house next door that I was about to tear to shreds, and talk to me about what solar could do for our new soon-to-be house. Uh, it looked like him spending a lot of time with me explaining this new technology it looked like my husband and I getting really excited about it and nerding out one evening over an Excel model to like model out our cash flows. It eventually looked like that solar installer pushing an $81,000 invoice across the table to me and saying, wow. okay, there you go. Uh, and me just kind of scratching, my husband and I both kind of scratching our heads saying, how is this, how is this supposed to actually work? They wanted you to pay cash. Well, I mean, they were a local installer. They had no finance options. This was 2009. Sunrun had entered Massachusetts. But, you know, this, this, this installer was not a Sunrun partner. They didn't believe in the lease. This account believed in ownership. So, I mean, this salesperson is a hero, right? He's out there selling $70,000 objects for cash yeah so heroic <laughs> so so what'd you do my husband and i managed to write the check we cobbled it together uh, but it was not again we were both struck by how are other members of our family supposed to do this how are our friends supposed to do this how is anyone who's uh in the rest of our network supposed to do this how is this supposed to work how are we going to scale this awesome thing, how are other people going to get to ex be exposed to this technology and have the same opportunity that we have if it's so very hard. 
And so at that point, did you say, all right, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm building a business. No, I'm going to make this better. I was picking out cabinet poles, I think next, and like (laughs) countertops. No, there, there was still no entrepreneurship in the mix there. It was, again, I have a baby, I have a two year old, I have a toddler and a baby. I'm like just moving into a house. This was still just kind of moving through all this. Um, So it took a, it took a good period of time before, before I kind of got up the courage to move it into thinking about it as a business. And at the beginning, I don't really think I did think about it as a business. Mm-hmm. Um, it took a lot of like kicking and shoving for my husband to be like, go, go solve this problem for the next person. You're, you're stuck on it and you're thinking about it. So just go, go do it. What gave you the courage to do it? Uh, well, <laughs> I remember at one point, uh, so my husband was, gave me a lot of the confidence to do this. And I remember saying to him, so he is a finance person. I remember saying, I'm not a finance person. I'm not a solar person. Like, why would I start a solar finance company? And I distinctly (laughs) remember him saying, uh, finance is just arithmetic and jargon. (laughs) Which I think is a pretty good summary of finance at the end of the day, right? Uh, So I was like, oh. Can someone someone tweet that? (laughs) When you put it that way, that seems pretty, okay, I I can do arithmetic. And learn the jargon. jargon. Yeah, I'll learn the jargon. I'd just been through the solar part of it. And so I, I think really the final kick was like he threatened to go hire a UMass student down the road and like <laughs> pay UMass students some money to go like do some desktop research. And I was like, okay, I can do desktop <laughs> research. Like I might have been cutting grapes and like doing diapers for the last four years, but I'm pretty sure I can mm-hmm. operate a mouse and do some desktop research. So uh, so that was that was really the kick. I'm cheap. And so when he threatened to use our money to go do that, I was like, all right, I'm in the seat. True entrepreneur. Um, but again, it wasn't starting a business. I was just you know doing, doing research some desktop research just keeping the seat warm yeah so and what did you find as you were doing that research uh well what i found was i i did do some mystery shopping uh and found that there weren't other options that were really oriented around meeting the consumer's needs i found that a lot of the local installers were really struggling with this and so I did the thing that was comfortable for me, right? So I didn't have a finance background, so my comfort zone was not Wall Street, so I couldn't go kind of worry about the capital side of the business first. My comfort zone was the consumer purchase process. So I just kind of hung out in that space for longer. So that looked like talking to other homeowners going solar, talking to other contractors who were trying to help homeowners go solar and just really wallow in that space for a lot of time. Wallow so, sounds like an appropriate word for it. was a lot of following. So uh, yeah, no, I went back to my same solar installer that had sold me solar. And I said, you know, heroic salesperson, the next time you've sold someone on solar, but they can't figure out how to write that big, huge check that somehow you got out of my pocket, send them my way. And he was like, okay, but what are you, what are you gonna do? <laughs> I'm gonna give them a loan. Uh, so he said, great, can I be the first customer? I have solar in my roof, but I want to put some in my garage too and totally go Your own zero. solar my installer own solar became your first became customer for the loan customer. to go solar. It was very ancestral. <laughs> own company installing it. Yeah, it was all happened at the local coffee shop. So you said, you said, I want to be a bank. I want to loan this capital to people who need well, it. Well, I, I decided that my daughter wanted to be a bank. So I took her college funds. <laughs> <laughs> your daughter 
at this time? Uh, she's, she was six at the time. Did you ask her? <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> right after cutting the grapes. Down time. Wow, okay. So, okay, so you took your daughter's college fund. And lent it to the trusty solar salesperson who wanted to put some more solar on his roof. And he said, great, let's go do that with, with Matt and Kim. And I said, great, let me go meet Matt and Kim. So I went to Matt and Kim's living room and sat down with them and played solar sales for solar finance salesperson for a day. And we did that with a bunch more people. And then Claire's college fund was tapped. So, <laughs> so then where'd the money come from after that? Uh, right, so that was the only time SunGate ran out of money was when I mm. tapped Claire's college fund. It had to take a little break there. Can we confirm that the college fund has since been replaced? Yes. Great. Yes. <laughs> people in the audience know that that college fund has been replaced, yes. Uh, so then, then I had to stop and say, okay, so this, I've proved out this at the conceptual level. Uh, at more than the conceptual level, at this sort of really duct tape and bubble gum, as I like to say, on the office level. And now I need to go build the industrial strength version of that. So I needed capital and I needed co-founders and I needed team. And so then I kind of went on that whole process. So the next, the next pot of money came from a like, very fortuitous lightning in a bottle type situation that I, that I could not hope to recreate which was getting introduced to Brian Garcia, who's the president of the Kinetic Green Bank. This was the first green bank in the nation. He had just started the green bank or had just been kind of rebranded as a green bank, the new mission. And he needed to prove the business model of the green bank. So I gave him a just awesome opportunity to put his checkbook to work. And that was nice of you. Yes. No, it was, we, we needed each other. And that was definitely one of the lessons along the way was like finding people mm. who mm. I could be important to. Right. He needed to prove out the kinetic green bank business model. I need capital. He had a checkbook. I had none. So it worked. It worked very, very nicely. So they were our second pot of capital. He just kind of gave me a checkbook to go and run and make a bunch of loans around Connecticut which we did and accrued onto his balance sheet, the Kinetic Green Bank balance sheet, uh, with some inkling that at some point we would figure out how to get it off their balance sheet to somewhere else. But it was one of those like kind of, he was willing to jump with two feet without knowing where we were gonna land type situations, which was amazing for someone in a you know quasi uh, government organization to take those kind of risks. So that was our next. So this, this quasi-government financial institution is the first money into your company other than your daughter's college fund? So we've, we've always kept the money for the loans outside, the kind of off the SunGage balance sheet, but mm -hmm. it was the next pot of money that I tapped that into. That you utilized. Claire's college fund was one pot, and uh -huh. then the Connecticut Green Bank funds were kind of the second pot. Was there an amount that they, was there a set amount that they committed? To I think make it was up to loans. five million was that first pot. So you know, small change, but it was a big step up at from, the time. Yeah, you know, the Claire's College Fund bit, and, yeah. and also unique for a lending startup to not have to raise right. uh, their own capital, kind of use their own equity capital to prove out the concept. Yeah, and um, what made what made him take. What, what made him take that risk on you? I know he needed to prove it out, but why you, why this? Well, we could go back to Shale's intro. I think, you know, some of the conviction and the storytelling, which, uh, I mean, at the time, that's all I had was, was the story. 
right, and the conviction. I didn't, I didn't have the know-how. I didn't know how I was going to get all the way from A to Z, but just a conviction around at some point the world will look like this new place and you can have a hand in making it so and, and you can put Connecticut on the map as a leader in moving us, us towards that future. I think that was all compelling for him. Uh, so, so it was right time, right place. He is definitely the right audience in terms of his willingness to take risks and his passionate belief in moving this space forward. And at this point, do you see yourself as an entrepreneur or do you still are you still resisting that? I, I think at this point, sure, yes. Yeah. At this point, I'm probably an entrepreneur. And what made you feel like you could embrace that given how it sounds like that was a sort of tumultuous thing in, in your childhood? Uh, I think it was just one step in front of the other. Again, it was not a it was not a conscious choice at this point. It was just kind of it, it took on this energy. I was consumed by it. I was excited by it. Uh, so that was it just kind of took over, I think, my being. <laughs> and did you have a as this is just happening? Did you have a at that point a co-founder, a team? Are you on your own doing this? Just when this Connecticut opportunity was coming into focus, right, when I was now building the industrial strength version of it, it became very clear to me that I, it was clear to everyone around me that I needed, you know, more of a team. And I, in particular, I needed a co-founder. So through some good old fashioned networking, which I can trace back to my mom, actually, uh, I was able to have the opportunity to meet my co-founder, Savan Mansir. He was graduating from Harvard Business School at the time had not yet found where he was going to land for a job, was still exploring. He had all the experience that I didn't, right? He had the kind of project finance experience in a renewable space. Uh, he had private sector experience, period. <laughs> he had a lot of passion for the renewable space. And so I was able to, to find him through that good old fashioned networking and, and the two of us kind of connected. So it was with that team that we attacked this first Connecticut uh, opportunity. Um, and at that point, are you paying yourselves? Do you have, I know you have the capital from the bank for the projects, but do you actually have right. capital for the business? Very dribs and drabs. I was not paying myself for, for a good many years at the beginning. Years? Years. Yes. Okay. And that was a luxury that I, that I had that many entrepreneurs yeah. don't, right? I had the husband with a good, stable mm -hmm. insurance industry job. Mm -hmm. So I, I had that luxury. So I was... I was able to fund the business in a pretty slim fashion. So I was raising for other people's salaries, mm -hmm. but not my own. Uh, that was a steep enough hill to climb. Mm -hmm. Who were your first hires as far as the roles that they played? So first hire, first hire that got me out of my living room and into <laughs> an office uh, was an intern just out of college. Uh, he started as a summer intern, became employee number one. He's still around today. Wow. Ian Thomas, one of our superstars. So he was employee number one. Uh, Sylvan joined very early on. Uh, Joe Abel, who spent time here at Sungevity, he joined early on as our VP of Ops. So those were really some of the early folks. Gotcha. Um, and then at what point did you feel like you had to go out and raise capital for the business? I mean, it sounds like you had a, a little bit. Yeah, we were raising, so I raised several seed rounds all in those first few, you know, first three years or so were all funded off of seed rounds one after another mm -hmm. <laughs> painfully you know just kind of trying to cobble it together uh, and then we we did our a at some point and that was kind of the first large injection of capital that came along and what type of investors participated in that a round 
Uh, our Series A was led by a fellow CEO type, so another business builder, which is which has been immensely helpful because he a is a decision maker. He doesn't sit on the fence. He's busy building a business of his own, uh, and he also has just a ton of applied knowledge. That whole investor group is actually a pair that run a business that's very similar to ours, and so they're able to see a lot of the parallels in our solar finance world that's, that's in their finance world. So hugely, hugely helpful there. So kind of high net worth uh, owner-operators, CEO types themselves. Mm -hmm. And so as you're raising the A, what's, what's coming easily to you? What do you just feel like, I was born for this, and then what was not? The storytelling part was was easy for me, right? I could kind of paint the picture of the consumer purchase process with conviction since I had been through it. I could tell the story, get the laughs, get the engagement. I could put myself into the position of the contractor network and really speak about that. I developed a fluency with Savant's help in speaking about the capital side of the business. Um, so that was, the storytelling part was easy. The rejection part was hard and, and I was, it was a very strange experience because as I was telling the story, I was basically telling it to two sets of investors, right? Because SunGage sits at the intersection of finance on the one hand, FinTech, and this weird solar space. So I was pitching both cleantech investor, investors and the kind of FinTech crowd. The, the clean tech crowd that I pitched, again, as Shale talked about in the intro, this was in the ascendancy of the PPA and lease model. This was kind of 2012 when I'm pitching folks. And I heard nothing but, why, why is there a need for any other financial product? Like the lease, how can you beat zero down? It's like the end all be all. There was like no space in the clean tech investor mind for anything other that was mm. than what was already in front of them, at least the folks that I met. Mm -hmm. And what, what did you say to them when they said it's, it's leases, it's just leases? Gosh, what did I say to them? <laughs> uh, you know, talked about different consumer segments, you know, tried to again tell my own story, talk about what we had done in Connecticut. You know, the other, the other, the, the conversation would morph into, well, if there is consumer demand for this other product, then the solar cities and others of the world were just morph into and add that, that product on, which as we've seen, you know, we, we could kind of, t it was all theoretical at that point. So we were fighting against a kind of invisible enemy at that point, the like solar city of the future that will offer this in a second and crush us. And, you know, I think as we've seen, it's, it's not the same as a like an ice cream shop who offers chocolate today and is just going to add on vanilla and it's just another product, right? Behind the choice of product in SolarCity's case was a whole business model, a whole cost structure. So very hard to add on, you know, other products into that um, with great ease. And I, you know, I think what we've seen is that that has been a challenge, but it was, yeah, it was hard to fight that kind of invisible future that could be out there. The, the crazy part was when I pitched the financial investors, they couldn't understand what this lease product was doing, being the dominant product in the space. A loan product made perfect sense to them. They could see how an asset class could get built up behind this new thing called a solar loan and kind of all the attractive first order principle, you know, kind of the first order characteristics of this new asset class that we could build up. So they were like, yeah, this, this makes perfect sense. We, we don't understand what's been going on in the solar industry that it looks so bizarre from a financial product selection point of view. So it was, it was a very schizoid kind of set of conversations to be in when you know, they were both saying very different things. 
Um, but certainly the, the hard part of that is just like the rejection of telling those stories and, and have people either be, if you're the fintech investor, you're kind of scared and confused about the solar space and just doesn't make much sense to you and to be told over and over again by the kind of experts in this space that the product made no sense, the business model wasn't going to be viable. You know, those were certainly hard times to go through that again and again. So for me, it was important to balance all those conversations with time with my team, time with our customers, who just provided this kind of counterweight to everything that I heard in those rooms, right? Just to be kind of reconnect with my customers as often as possible. That was, that was proving all those mm. negative conversations mm. wrong. It was so helpful. Did you experience, was any of the rejection, do you attribute it to being a female founder? And did that, do you feel like that changed your experience, particularly fundraising? Certainly, I mean, the, the notion is that a lot of venture investing is done based on patterns, and there are many parts of me that don't fit a pattern, apart from the fairy tale of like how companies are started. But, you know, A, a female founder, B, a background full of public sector academic mumbo jumbo and four years of stay at home momness, none of that fit a pattern. So, so yeah, I'm sure I caused some head scratching among folks. And if you're head scratching, then like, why not write the check for the folks where you're not head scratching, mm -hmm. right? Like maybe pique some interest, but at the end of the day, as investors, you, you take risks on certain folks, right? And if there's head scratching, you know. But you were able to raise the Series A? Yes, the A and the B. So it sounds like the challenge is some of it was the rejection, um, some of it gender-based, but then being able to connect with your team and connect with your customers and that kept you going. Were there, and that sounds pretty even, you know, pretty balanced, were there, were there dark moments where you said, this isn't going to work or I'm not going to be able to pay everyone or was it all pretty steady and even? Steady and evening would not be the modifiers. <laughs> uh, no, it was a slog and there were certainly scary moments and moments when we were, we were getting very low in the bank balance. I remember early on going back to one of our angel investors who I like to joke, he wrote me a check like, I read a check to the local animal shelter. Like, here's my $20. I never expect to see it again. You're really cute, you know, like puppy. Like, no, no expectation. I, I went back to him and I said, you know, I just to catch up with him and, you know, he's like, oh, I'd like to help you some more. You know, can I write another check? I said, sure, that'd be great. Uh, he's okay, you know, I'll make it out for 50. And I said, can you make it 100? Yeah. <laughs> he's like, well, I'd have to move some. I'm like, can you it really that? needs to be 100 yeah. today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, okay. Yeah. Very demanding animal shelter here. <laughs> but okay. Uh, so yeah, there were certainly moments like that, like moments like if I hadn't convinced him to write it for 100, like we might not be here right now. Like there were definitely those near-death moments. Um, I think the darkest moments for me personally were the times when I didn't fall through or didn't, didn't do the things that as a CEO my team counted on me to do. Right? And those are still like the dark moments that I that sit with me and haunt me, right? For a CEO, it's raising capital, it's recruiting folks, and I've certainly had moments when those things have not gone well or when I've experienced failure in those two areas. And, and those are the hardest, the hardest ones, right? For the founders um, and CEOs that are here tonight and listening, 
what would you to say what would you say to them when when we at times fail at the things that we say we're going to do when it comes to just like you said you know whether it's team or raising capital what would you say uh to just be forgiving of yourself uh it is a very hard road but um to to learn from those experiences and i certainly took lessons away from all of those moments of failure which there have been plenty of so good good teachers those failing moments early on right one of the big failures was i had an opportunity with a large balance sheet who i had kind of a, one of those networking connections into and got the call one day from this large balance sheet saying oh we're going to write you this equity check we're going to write you this check to fund your loans and it's all going to be golden we were four people at that point this was a watershed moment i was thrilled, got the phone, hooting, hollering, exciting, and the whole thing fell apart. And like, what I thought was the 11th hour, as I know more about how these transactions unfold, it was more like the sixth hour, but <laughs> it felt like I was there and I you know, got this kind of call and then it all fell apart. And so I had to kind of like pick up myself, pick up my team, move forward, find another way. But it was certainly one of, one of those learning moments for me of realizing that, uh, big balance sheets, big partners, big strategics can be very enticing and they can con consume a lot of energy from you. Uh, and yet if you're not important to them, those relationships can be, you know, very, very fragile. And that was exactly what, what happened to me. As soon as there was a bump in the road, you know, mm. there was no real purchase there on the other side of the table. There was no real, we have to make this happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and so for me, that was, that was the learning out of that dark moment was, you know, make sure the ink is dry before you go hooting and hollering to your mm -hmm. team because then you'd have to pick up everyone along with yourself mm -hmm. and uh, make sure when you invest in these conversations with people across the other side of the table that you understand that you are important mm -hmm. to them and you understand why you're important to them. Mm -hmm. Has that changed who you partner with from a capital standpoint? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I mean, I think Brian kind of spoiled us at the Connecticut Green Bank side of things. But, but since then, certainly understanding what role we play uh, in our capital partners strategy has been, has been critical because these partnerships are involved and they are intensive and you know, we want to be building for the long haul. So we need to understand how we fit into our bank partner strategy over the long haul. That's critical to us, kind of making good on our vision. Mm -hmm. And having gone through some of those tumultuous moments, was there a point with SunGage where you said, we're good, we've made it, this is, you know, we're one of the largest loan providers in the country, I am an entrepreneur? <laughs> I, I don't think that kind of form of satisfaction feeling done is just within me. I just don't think that's how I'm wired. So, so no, there's not a lot of kind of sitting back and being done. There's, there's always just more to do, right? I mean, this whole industry moves so quickly. The consumer purchase process is, is evolving, doing evolve so quickly in ways that are exciting and wonderful and that we all want to happen, right? We were having a great discussion earlier about EVs and storage and battery. So there's just so much, so much still to do, so. What lessons took the longest to learn? I think the lesson for me that took a frustratingly long time to learn was the importance and really the, just the sheer power of, this is really nerdy, but like setting norms and being clear about roles and responsibilities at SunGage. 
And I, I equate it to, I love metaphors. People at Sunnygate know this, I use metaphors all the time. Imagine trying to build a house. You've got a whole crew of people and you have no blueprints. So you don't know what you're building. And you don't know if you're the electrician or the plumber or the carpenter, right? You can imagine how long it would take you to build that house and how shoddy that house would be, <laughs> right? Uh, so super helpful to have a set of norms by which you all organize yourselves, and those are the blueprints, right? This is what we're building. This is what it looks like. This is where the two by four is gonna go. This is where to frame the window. And super helpful for everyone to have their own clarity around what their role and responsibility is. I'm doing the roughing on the plumbing. Okay, I'm over here on the two by fours. Like really important to have that for speed and quality of what you are building. We only started to get serious about this probably in the last eight to nine months. We hired a team coach. She came in and worked with our management team to really get that clear among us, the six of us. And we've slowly started to kind of extend the reach of that out to the rest of the company. But just the power of, of doing that for the six of us in the management team and the speed and the clarity and uh, has, has really been hugely helpful for us. And so I'm, I'm frustrated that took so long for me to get on board with. It's something that I think every What It Takes guest and, and speaker has said, which is ultimately it comes down to people and it comes down to the team and the functionality and efficiency right. of the team. So... Definitely yeah, I really fits. took for granted like how much you really just have to make explicit. Yeah. Painfully explicit. Yeah. You know, this is how we're going to make decisions. Yeah. This is, you know, when I email you at two in the morning, it doesn't mean you have to email me back. Just like all this kind of stuff of how we relate to one another can be super powerful and has been super powerful for us. For us. Do you have, and do you have a support network of other founders, of mentors, executive coaches? I know it sounds like you had this team coach. Did you have a support network? Do you now? How important was that? Right. I didn't have any formal mentors. I don't know if like my mom self also would have had time to like engage in a mentoring relationship also. I think for those to really be fruitful, you really, you really need to invest in them. And I don't think I had the time to do that. So I've kind of cobbled this together with a bunch of different teachers from, from a bunch of, you know, everyone can be a teacher from my perspective, right? So have learned a ton from my co-founder as teacher and other, other members of our, of our team. Learned a ton from our investors and board members, right? This, this kind of folks that I mentioned before that participated in our Series A as fellow business builders have learned a ton from them. Other entrepreneurs, yes, some of that. I've certainly, there's a, there's a class of entrepreneur that, um, that I met early on that was very unhelpful and just made me more scared of starting a business. The one who kind of throws around the jargon of, oh, you'll raise some convertible debt and you'll do this and you'll do that. And hearing that as a first time, you know, founder, I was like, I have no clue what this person is saying, right? So there's a set of entrepreneurs who tend to like to regale you with their, their jargon. And those folks tend to be not as helpful. And then there's a set of folks who really just want to demystify it and, and recognize as one founder told me that it's um so he uses metaphor of like it's like poker and bridge right poker you can smart your way through like it's pretty simple to understand the rules two pairs beats one pair you can be really smart you can count cards and you can like iq your way through poker 
what this founder told me was starting a company and being an entrepreneur, and especially like the capital raising process, is more like playing bridge. It's a world of convention. You have to know that if you load, throw down a low club, that signals to your partner X, Y, Z. And if you're not in this space, you don't know what you're signaling to an investor when you say a prospective investor when you say X, Y, Z. You don't know what you're signaling when your cap table looks like A, B, C. So uh, the entrepreneurs who gave me the space to not know how to play bridge yet and just be willing to share the convention of bridge rather than kind of like lording it over me, those, those were helpful entrepreneurs. So those folks have been teachers. My husband has been teacher. Um, so yeah, lots, lots of kind of picking teachers along the way. How do you feel about entrepreneurship now? I think it's the greatest personal development opportunity you will ever find in a professional setting. It's well said. It is, you know, certainly uh, ranks up there with having a kid and becoming a parent in terms of how much you have to grow as a person. I think it can also be uh, very damaging if you're not kind of prepared and have the foundation to move yourself through it, right? And the preparation is not having domain knowledge or having gone to business school or any of that kind of stuff, but the preparation of being very self-aware, the preparation of knowing how to take care of yourself. And because no one else is gonna tell you to take care of yourself other than maybe your partner, right? But really practicing self-care, uh, an incredible amount of resilience, right? If you, if you don't have these things and you throw yourself into this thing called entrepreneurship, it, it can and will eat you alive, I think, right? And the equivalent of like running a marathon without training for it. You need to, again, <laughs> with, without the training being having an MBA. I don't have an MBA. Without your training being knowing solar or finance to start a solar finance company. <laughs> None of that required, but a huge amount of self-awareness, a huge amount of determination and resilience, ability to take care of yourself and a support network to be there when you fall down, right? A, a co-founder, a partner at home, kids, you know, whatever your source of strength is going to be, but making sure you have that. If you could call your younger self and give yourself advice, what would it be? Mm -hmm. I would tell my younger self uh, to lean into my self-awareness as the strength that it is. That is one of the pieces that I, that I have uh, a healthy dose of and it, it can be debilitating if you're super aware that, again, you're a first-time founder. You're super aware that you don't know this piece of the puzzle yet. It can be debilitating. But to kind of lean into it as a strength, be very honest with the folks around me, around what my strengths and weaknesses are, and really allow people to fill in those gaps. Because really, that at the end of the day, that's what it's about, right? We all have gaps. We all have things that we're good at and we're bad at. So for me, it's about... Am I aware of what those gaps are? And how expertly and quickly can I fill in people to kind of complement the gaps that I have, right? So telling myself, you use your self-awareness as a strength to be honest with the folks around you as to what you're, you're good at, what you enjoy doing, um, and, and be totally open with letting other people fill in those other areas. For the entrepreneurs who are here tonight and those listening, what advice would you have for them? Um, you know, if they're five years or so behind where you are, right. as far as the, the stage, what would you say? Yeah. I think the first piece is to really ask yourself again and again, why? Right? Like, why 
you want to do this. To really set aside the how questions, the how questions are where you can get bogged down and scared and I don't know how yet and there's so much to figure out. But to first just be really clear on why you're doing what you're doing from a very personal point of view, right? For me, and again, maybe I have, I'm sure, I'm sure I have a bias, entrepreneurship was not the why, right? Entrepreneurship was the means to an end to solve this problem that I was passionate about solving, but I didn't, I didn't wake up one day saying, I want to do a startup and let me go figure out a problem to solve, right? It was, it came from a, a deep connection to solving the problem first and foremost. So ask yourself why. Uh, when you're in the fundraising process, again, really spend your time validating the future world that you see with those experts and put aside all of their naysaying around the how. Because again, a lot of those folks are gonna be so steeped in the how it's being done today that they won't necessarily be able to set that aside. So if I could have really focused on the, this future where there's multiple financial products for folks and we have bank balance sheets being put to work and really force them to, to anchor on that future world rather than getting caught up in the how I was going to get there, right? So focus on the big picture of the why, setting aside the naysayers around the how. Um, and then again, you know, finding, finding folks that you can be important to, right? Even a two, three person startup can be important to someone, right? Thinking strategically about who you can be important to, to bring on and help you build, uh, build this out, I think can be very powerful. Can I allow you to leapfrog some stages, kind of capture some of that lightning in a bottle like, like we did with the Kinetic Green Bank? Has it been validating to see the market move so entirely into the loan space? You're like, told ya. I, yeah, yes, I, I, won't, I won't deny that it has been very validating. I have resisted going back to any of those investors who threw me out and said, I don't get it. Why don't they just do home equity if they need a loan? Or I don't get it, like zero down lease, how could it be better? Uh, but no, it's of course, it's, it's hugely validating. I did have one of my early investors called me a soothsayer the other day. I really, really liked that. <laughs> it's like, what's next, Sarah? Tell me the future. Everything you've said has come true. <laughs> um, we're going to move into our high voltage round, uh, short questions with short answers. If you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? And I want to clarify, this is not what animal do you want to be. This is what animal would you be? Right. Some, they're different answers, at least for me. <laughs> So I'm going to give a gift to the crowd. Uh, it will be an icebreaker for anyone who wants to come ask me about this afterwards and say goat. I'm not going to tell you why. And anyone say, Sarah, why is your aunt, why are you going to be a goat? Because there's a story, but it's too long for now. This is high voltage. Can we, can we get the 10 second version? No. Can, no. Wait. <laughs> Sorry, move on. Can I get like one goat characteristic that you relate to? Climbing to the top always. Climbing, climbing. High five. High five. <laughs> uh, what have you found consistently most inspiring? The folks that work around me, the new talent that we bring on board, the talent that's stuck around since the beginning, and kind of the continually improving, kind of evolving crew. It's just amazing. If you had to change careers tomorrow, what would you do? Ooh, uh, I might be a yoga teacher or an architect or something else I haven't thought of. To whom do you attribute your success? 
My husband. Oh. What's the hardest thing that you've confronted that you didn't expect? Ooh, I wasn't prepared for this. One. I know, I threw it in. <laughs> uh, that I didn't expect. I guess the, I didn't expect to have to, uh, in my space as leader, be really careful in how I use my voice. Say more. Well, because again, I, I was kind of an imposter CEO, shouldn't have been here, shouldn't have been doing this. Um, so I never really placed a whole lot of weight on my, or not an outsized weight. Right, and so I've, I've had to get used to the fact that like, oh, I'm the CEO, that's right, when I say something, I can't just mouth off because people actually react and orient to, to power in this way, right? Is what you do different than who you are? Oh, is what you do different than who you are? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I think so. No, I, uh, look, you can put on paper what I've done, but the, the, the how pieces and the kind of pieces that are inside my heart are, are different than any of the what, right? Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because? They fail to evolve with the market. Success is? Building something meaningful for the world and staying true to yourself along the way. My biggest regret is? Yeah, I don't, I don't have that. I'm not wired that way. I just don't. So I tried really hard to come up with something. It's a goat, it's a goat I just realized I don't, I don't, yeah. Uh, I'm most proud of? I'm most proud of, uh, Again, team, just like the, the folks that have been joining us recently, folks that have stayed around for a while, I am proud of how we've learned, how our relationships have really evolved through time, and we've learned to be better teammates for each other. I'm really proud of that. And last question, what it takes to build a clean energy company is? Ooh, lots of determination and, and self-care. Nice. Please join me in a round of applause for Sarah Ross. <laughs>